God is good? And all the time? Man, have you been wrecked this morning? Been wrecked with Jesus today. That was awesome. As a couple of the guys were giving their, their testimony and telling you as a church that God had called them to ministry, uh, I happened to look at my phone, which goes off every single day at 9.38. And remember, we've been praying for a, a couple years now, Matthew 9.38, that uh, Jesus presents a problem. Well, he presents an opportunity first. That is, that there's a lot of people that need Jesus. Do you agree with that? And then he says, but there's not very many people going and telling all the people that they need Jesus. And so we've been praying and so Jesus gives us an opportunity, presents a problem, but then he says there's a resolution like pray that God would send forth more labors in his harvest. That's Matthew 9, 38. And so every day my alarm goes off at 9, 38 to remind me to pray that God would call more young people or old people into ministry. And so right as they're telling their story, guess what time it was? 9.38. God is good? And all the time. And uh, if you don't know, I'm John. I'm blessed to serve as the pastor here. And as I said, man, my heart has been blessed already. Before we get into the message, I want to circle back to uh, little Riley Campos' testimony. Um, I, do you guys still have it? Is it right there? I mean, I can pretty much, I have it memorized. All right, Carlos, here you go. Make you get up instead of your mother-in-law. Thank you. Because I don't want to move any farther without highlighting the most important thing that was said today. And it was really from, how old is Riley now? Six. From a six-year-old. I should have got the typed version, probably. <laughs> and she said this. Miss Allison shared with me the ABCs from the Bible. A, admit that you're a sinner. It's very clear what the Bible teaches, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And a six-year-old can teach that to us today. And she said, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, and he is the son of God. Isn't that amazing? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And whoever, what's the word? Believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Admit I'm a sinner. Believe Jesus is the son of God. And then see, confess your faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody gets to the Father except through me. And so from the penmanship of a six-year-old, I would not want to leave this morning in this amazing celebration of God working in the life of these students without giving everyone in the opportunity to that be your story. That possibly today, right now in this moment, what you've experienced through testimony, through baptism, through the proclaiming of truth, through his word, through music, God has already stirred in your heart that you need to be saved. She said, confess your faith in Jesus as the Savior and Lord. So I prayed, and I got saved. 
Maybe you could do that today. In fact, I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes for a moment. And if God has spoken to you today through all that we've experienced, God is telling you in this moment, it's, it's your time. Scripture says today is the day of salvation, that you've heard the truth. In order to get to heaven, in order to have eternal life, in order to have a relationship restored with God, your creator, from the mouth of a six-year-old through Scripture, admit, believe, confess. And I'm going to lead you through a prayer of belief. It's not so, mo- so much important, the words I speak, but it's, it's you admitting you're a sinner. It's you believing Jesus is Lord. It's you confessing Jesus is the Savior of the world. If you would like to do that right now, right where you're seated, I'm going to invite you to pray. You may say something like this, God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for me. I confess Jesus is Lord. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. I ask you in this moment to forgive me, to save me. And as our eyes are closed, I would just simply ask, if you, if you prayed that prayer, if you placed your faith in Jesus, would you just put your hand up for a moment? Everybody's eyes are closed. I, I just wanna, I wanna pray for you, all right? There's one. Just put your hand up high. Just put, put your hand up. Anyone else? Two, three. Anyone else? Four, five, six. Anyone else? Six that I can see, and really it's not important that I see it, just to be honest with you. God sees it. Could, could we celebrate that this morning? <clears throat> and you can look up now. I, I want to encourage those of you that made a decision, if you would, to uh, let us know. Debbie already explained to you, you can get your phone out and do the QR code, and it'll lead you in the steps of letting us know. There's also a card right there in the pew in front of you. You're welcome to fill that out just right on the back side of it. I gave my life to Jesus, and I'll be in the back in the foyer when we're dismissed. On your way to your burger, you could hand that to me, or there's boxes at each of the exits. You can just drop that card in the box, and it's, it's the greatest decision you've ever made, and uh, let's celebrate that again. Praise the Lord. Awesome. All right, turn with me to First, uh, first Chronicles uh, 7, all right? Excuse me, Second Chronicles chapter number 7. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, this verse number 14 is well known. It's many people have it memorized. It's a verse of scripture that it seems like every church wants to share when it's like election time or every time that like July 4th, there's probably hundreds if not thousands of churches that are going to preach on this specific verse even today. But as we look at the verse, I want us to wrestle with the question because the verse says, and it's a response of God to King Solomon's prayer. And it says right here, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, if they'll seek my face, if they'll turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. And oftentimes, I I think mostly maybe in our Western culture and in America, we use this verse as a blanket promise of God to the United States of America, right? And oftentimes what we 
view that in our own lenses is that what that means is that uh, the president we want will be in office and, uh, you know, my 401k will always be going in the correct direction and every other, you know, assumption you might have of this is what it means to be blessed as an American. And so my question that I want to wrestle with you today is, is this a promise to us as a country? That if we will get in line. Now, I think most of us would agree as a culture, we're not really following Jesus. Would you agree with that? Okay, as a culture, okay, and I'm a part of that culture, right? It's easy for us in the church to sit there and say, yeah, we pray this prayer and say, yeah, if those people out there would turn to God, man, everything in my life would be great. Because, I mean, it's right here in black and white, right? God has made this promise. But when we look at scripture, we have to understand the context, right? Who is this written to? Who is it specifically written about? And what is the response we have now many years later? And so in this passage, this, the direct context is First Chronicles chapter number six. And King Solomon, who is the son of King David, remember King David wanted to build a house of the Lord, okay? And God told him no, but you can gather all the resources and your son Solomon, he will build the temple, the house of the Lord. And in, in chapter number six, the house of the Lord is being dedicated. Solomon has this amazing prayer of dedication. It says he gets on his knees and he raises his hand before God and he cries out to God. And if you look in, in chapter six, we're just gonna look at two verses in chapter six, verse number 24 and 25. And, and it's kind of a repetitive prayer that he continues to say, God, if this happens, but if we repent, then will you, will you hear? And, and it's really pretty succinct in verse 24 and 25, 2 Chronicles 6. So he says, if your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because, right? So he understands, Solomon knows that if they are defeated, it is because they have sinned against you. And if they return and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you in this temple, verse 25, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land which you gave to them and their fathers. And over and over in chapter six, this is the sentiment of the prayer. God, if we turn from you as a nation and you judge us, which you can read all about that in Judges, right? It's a cycle of the judges, the cycle of, of sin as over and over and over again, the nation of Israel would fall into sin, God would judge them often from pagan nations and then they would cry out to God, oh God, we're sorry. God would forgive and heal their land and restore them. And then what would the nation of Israel do again? Fall back into sin, turn their back on God. And so again, this is really a reiteration of Deuteronomy chapter 28 and Deuteronomy chapter 30, where we see that God had made a covenant with the nation of Israel that if you live in obedience, then you will live in blessing. But if you live in disobedience, then you will live in cursing. In chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, it goes a little farther to say it's life and it's death. Choose life or choose death. And so this is a, a promise, a covenant made specifically to the nation of Israel. And so Solomon says, God, if, if the cycle continues, if we're being judged because of our son, if we pray and repent, will you will you hear us? Wouldn't you have been, like to have been in, in the temple that day? Because in, in chapter seven, 
This is not on your screen, but I, I'll just tell you a little bit about it. But in chapter seven, verse one, it says, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering, the sacrifice and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And then all the people said, begin to worship God. He's good. His mercy endures forever. Wouldn't that be awesome if at the end of our worship set this morning, when we cry out to God, fire would just come down? I mean, it'd be kind of scary, but it'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it? In fact, uh, Pastor Matt, he's out cooking our hamburgers and hot dogs. And what he told me this morning is that he smells like an Old Testament priest. <laughs> the burnt sacrifices are going up before the Lord. Don't think that's what I meant. That's what he said, okay? I'm not saying it's biblical. It's just what Pastor Matt said. What an amazing display of God's power and his glory. Do you wish to see the power of God in your life? Do you wish to see the glory of God in this place? Do you wish to see the glory of God in this country, in the world? I do. And in chapter, or verse number 11 of chapter seven, it says that after the house was, of the Lord was built and after the palace, the king's palace was built, it's kind of the timeline here. Okay, and in, in Kings, we can read that it took seven years to build the house of the Lord, that they are now dedicated in chapter number six. And then it took 13 years for King Solomon to finish his house, a period of 20 years of construction. So there's a little bit of debate when we get to our, the verses that we're going to read in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, beginning in verse number 12. Like, it doesn't really matter the context. It's just interesting to know that we're not sure. And verse number 12 could have been right after that night when Solomon prays the prayer, God, if we mess up and if we repent, will you hear us and will you forgive us? It could have been some years later, 10 years later after his house was built that God finally comes back to him. Either way, it really doesn't change the context other than there's one maybe caveat is that potentially if this verse 12 is an answer to prayer 10 years after then I would begin to think that at this point, because if you don't know, King Solomon turns his back on God. And King Solomon married pagan wives, and the pagan wives turns his heart away from God, exactly what God told him not to do, because exactly what he told him to do was going to happen. And so potentially, when we get to verse number 12, this process of Solomon already turning his heart away from God has already started. We don't, we don't know that. Either way, the truth is still the same. So let's, let's read verse 12 through the end of the chapter. All right, so we're in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 12. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place as for myself as a house of sacrifice, when I shut up heaven, there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. Here's the famous verse, verse 14. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive and prayer made in this place. I love the thought that, right? This is some application for us even today that this is a house of, the, we sang that when we first walked in here this morning, right? This is the house of the Lord, a place where we gather and we worship and we meet with God. Verse 16, for I, now I have chosen to sanctify this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be, be there perpetually. And here, here's where it, 
So understand God already knows whether this was exactly the day after they dedicate the temple or 10 years later, God already knows the future, right? He lives outside of time and space. He knows. And so not only is this just a conversation, but it's also prophecy from God of what's going to take place. Verse 17, as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked and do according to all that I've commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as a covenant from David, your father, saying you shall not fail to have a man as a ruler in Israel. But, verse 19, if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land, which I have given them. And this house, which I have sanctified for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And if you know much about history, that's exactly what happened. Verse number 21, as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done this to the land and the house? Then they will answer, because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them out of this land of Egypt. And they embraced other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this calamity on them. What we learn about this text, very simple, is that God is faithful to his word. God told them, if you live in disobedience, I will curse you. I will destroy my house and it will be a testimony to all who come after that the nation of Israel did not live in obedience, therefore I judged them. God is faithful to his word and sometimes his word is harsh, right? It was very clear to them. But, but the question here is, does this verse, so I want to I spend some time on verse 14. Does this verse, a blanket statement, is it a covenant God has made to any nation other than Israel? Is it a, is it a statement that we can claim for America? And I would say based on context, the answer is no. This was a specific promise to a specific country the nation of Israel, a chosen people. However, I do think that as we look at this passage of script there, there is four directives that are universal principles for all of us as followers of Jesus. That as followers of Jesus, these four statements in 2 Chronicles 7.14 apply to us personally today. Now, when we see 2 Chronicles 7.14, what we see is a national revival. If my people will humble, if they'll pray, if they'll seek my face, if they'll turn, which means to repent, then I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive them and I'll heal their land. Wouldn't that be awesome if that did happen in the United States of America? It would be amazing. National revival would be awesome. Do you think it's still possible for the United States to have a national revival? We got just a glimpse of that this past summer, didn't we, in some of the colleges? The truth is, at camp this past week, these students and these leaders got a glimpse of what revival looks like. And I got to go Sunday night and I got to just see a small glimpse of what it looks like. But here's what we have to understand. Although we long for revival of the United States of America, that corporate revival will not precede personal revival. So let's, let's, oftentimes we come to this verse and especially for us who are in the church, 
we often come to this verse with lenses of, yeah, those people need to repent. But I want us to walk to these four directives that we see in this verse, and, and I want us to, to internalize them. Is this what God is asking me to do? Because I believe that if we take these four steps personally, God will give us personal revival. And the only way for this church to have revival is for me and you personally to have revival. The only way for this country to have revival is for me and you and this church and the next church and the next church to have revival. So let's just walk through these really quick, all right? The first one, the first directive is pretty simple. If my people are called by my name, will, what's the word? Humble themselves. If you will humble yourself before a holy, righteous God. I don't know about you, but from what I've experienced in my own life and what I see in other people's lives, pride may be the biggest sin we, we deal with. Now, it manifests itself in our lives in maybe different ways, but I think many times the core of our sin is, is our pride, right? That center letter of pride is what? I that I want to be in control, that I want to be the God of my life, that I want life like I want it and I'm not gonna make any apology for it. That possibly in my own life, I am not living a life of humility. What does a life of humility look like? Jesus was our example, wasn't he? First, or excuse me, Philippians chapter two. If there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Do you realize that inside the church, really in life, in any relationship, there can't be unity without humility? Let nothing, verse three, be done with, through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also the interest of others. Does anybody find that easy to think of others first? How many of you just, maybe there's some of you, how many of you just naturally are like, oh yeah, I wanna serve everyone else, not myself first, all right? We got a few of you, saints. I ain't one of those. Now on a good day, I think of others first. But on a normal day, I think of me first. Can I get an amen? I didn't hear any amen, just laughing. All right, we're gonna, the last one is repent, okay? So we're gonna, we're gonna get to that in a minute. Do you realize when you think about this aspect of pride and humility, let each of you look out not only for his own interest. Stephen read in Acts chapter number two and all throughout that passage, you see unity, unity, unity. And all things in common and they met in prayer and they were unified for the sake of the gospel. Unity cannot take place apart from humility. Let's think about this in every single relationship. We can think of that in the, in the context of the church, but I think about that as a husband and wife. There can't be unity in the marriage without humility. And so often, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take you off the hook. So often in my own life, I have to consciously make a decision. I'm gonna lay aside my pride. 
So verse, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider to be consider Robert to be equal with God. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form on of a servant, coming to likeness of men, and being found in the appearances of men, he humbled himself. There's the key word. He became obedient. Humility always leads to obedience. Came obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Christ is our example that we would live in humility. If I personally am going to see God work in my life like I want him to, the first step is I've got to humble myself. The second step, pretty easy, we've got to pray. You know what I think the biggest hindrance to my prayer life is? Number one, pride. Because prayer is an acknowledgement that I'm dependent on God. And pride often keeps me from prayer. In fact, I would say most times it's pride that keeps me from prayer. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known in God. And prayer, then verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. If for no other reason to pray, here's a great reason. That peace is a byproduct of prayer. Peace is a byproduct of prayer. When I humble myself and pray, God can give me peace. Again, because prayer is acknowledging that I'm dependent on someone else. I'm dependent on God. I can't do it on my own. Can I give you a prayer to pray? I heard this from um, David Allen this week, and it's going to be on the screen. Here's a prayer that I, I want to... A few years ago, we, we did a series called Dangerous Prayers. Well, here's a dangerous prayer, right? So if you want to live on the edge, take a picture and pray this prayer every week, right? Or write it down if you're quick. Lord, do anything in me you need to do in order to do everything through me you want to do. Let that sink in for a moment. Lord, do anything in me you need to do in order to do everything through me you want to do. And Carson, when he was telling us his testimony, said it was like he was living a double life. Church life, home life. How many of you, you, I don't want you to raise your hand, but you know, nod your head if you want. How many of you that resonated with you just a little bit, right? Thank you for being honest and transparent, Carson, and sharing that, because we all struggle with that. And I'm wondering if we're not seeing the glory of God in our life because we haven't completely given surrender of God in our life. One of the saddest verses in the Bible, when Jesus went home, and tried to do a bunch of miracles, revealed that he was the Messiah. He left and it said, he did not do very many miracles there because of their unbelief. So if we long to see the spirit of God in our life, we have to humble ourselves, we have to pray and say, God, I'm all yours. Because before he can do through us, he has to do in us. Right? You guys agree with that? I'm not sure if it's good English, but do you agree with it? 
All right, number three, seek God's face. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face. And Jesus reiterated, this, reiterated these words, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And a lot of us can quote Jeremiah 29, 11, I, you know, but, but let's think about Jeremiah 29, 13. God says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So I have a, a simple question regarding seeking God's face. What are you seeking? What do you get up every morning seeking? What do you go to bed at night thinking about? Because if we seek him first, all these things will be added unto us. Like God has to be priority of your life. Seek him first. Hosea 10, 12 says, it is time to seek the Lord. We say this very often, you are as close to God as you choose to be. You realize that? James says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. In other words, every step you take towards God, he takes another step towards you. You are as close to God. And this is a, a true statement. It's kind of alarming. How much are you seeking God in your life? Humble yourself. Pray. Seek God's face. And number four, turn from your wicked ways. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Here's a lost word oftentimes in the church, and that is repentance. I want you to answer this question in your own heart. You don't, I don't want to hear from you. Do you think your sin is offensive to God? Because it seems like what I've experienced in my own life and, and dealing with church people, that it's real easy to see that other people's sin is an offense to God. But not so easy to see that my sin is offense to God. Because my sins aren't quite like those sins. Are you tracking with me? I think we underestimate, undervalue, underappreciate, I don't know the right word, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to pay the penalty of the sin you freely commit. And I'm, I've wrestled with this a while. That I don't think for us average American Christians that we really see our white lie or whatever it is, our little lust, our little look, what we watch on TV, what we listen to, places we go, conversations we have, they're not really hurting anyone. But what put Jesus on the cross? Was it only the big sins? It was every sin that I've committed. Even in our terms, the smallest of sins. And, and shame on me 
for not being willing to repent of my sin, which is an offense to a holy, righteous God. That little sin that I commit, if it was the only sin I committed, placed Jesus on the cross. So I don't think that this verse is a blanket statement for America, but I think it's, it's, it's deeper than that. It's me. If I would humble myself and pray, see God's face, and live in repentance, well, God will use me. God will forgive me. God will heal me. He'll do the same for you. It's really quiet in here. I wish I had a joke to tell, but I don't. When's the last time you were broken over your sin? Because every one of us, well, I don't know every one of us. It seemed like every one of us said, yeah, we want revival. Woohoo! God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. But are we willing to take the steps that lead to revival? Are we willing to live in a spirit of repentance? James says, I confess to the Lord for forgiveness, but I confess to my brother in Christ for healing. How dare I pray for revival for our nation if I'm not walking in these four steps? My challenge for every one of us today is that we would walk in these four steps every single day. That every single day we would get before God and humble ourselves. We would pray. We would seek his face. We would live in confession and repentance. And I'm thankful for 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. There's freedom in confession. Can, can you understand that? There's freedom in confession to your brother in Christ as well. And I want for me to walk these four steps every single day. And I want for you to walk these four steps every single day. I'm gonna ask the, the praise team to come up here and I'm gonna ask everybody to close your eyes for a moment. We're gonna close the service in a time of worship. I love this song, Jesus is a Waymaker. But, but today, during this time of worship, during this time of response, I would challenge you, if there's something in your life that God has revealed to you that you need to confess, it may be as simple as saying, God, I'm walking in pride. It may be as simple as, God, I don't spend much time in prayer because of my pride. It may be, God, there's a lot of other things in my life that I've focused on, not you and your face. It may be that there's some serious unconfessed sin in your life that you need to repent. And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let you know that the altar down here is open. In a moment, I'm gonna pray, we're gonna stand, we're gonna sing, but it's a time for you to respond. If God has said, 
you need to confess, you need to repent, then do it. God, I thank you for these students and how you worked in their life this week. Lord, I pray over them because, Lord, I know we see clearly all throughout Scripture that when you move in someone's life, Satan, it's like the alarms go off and Satan will attack. So, God, I pray a hand of protection over these students. Continue to give them unity and community, Lord, to stand strong together in the faith. Lord, I pray that this morning for those who raised their hand, that they had prayed a prayer of faith, placing their faith in Jesus, that they would tell someone about it today. That you would give them the courage to take the next step of baptism. Lord, I pray for those of us, if there's confession that needs to happen, if there's repentance that needs to happen, Lord, that today would be the day and we will lay it before you. This next few minutes is yours, Lord. We want to worship through music through prayer, through confession, through repentance, through hearing from you. I'm gonna invite you to stand this morning as we worship through music today.